0: You know, I have spent a lot of time uh, traveling uh, for ministry in places like Russia and Eastern Europe, especially in the early 1990s and the early 2000s. Although I was in uh, Hungary um, last year, once again, after it'd been a while. But, but one of the things that was interesting about traveling and doing ministry in Russia and Eastern Europe, especially in those early days, there was something very interesting about those places, at least back at that time, is it it seemed like very few people there in those places wore deodorant. And um, I don't know if it was just not available or if I don't know it was just, it was kind of a cultural thing, but I tell you, you have not lived until you have been on a packed subway car. I mean, I'm talking like packed like sardines and, you know, everybody grabs those straps, and you've got some guy's pit right in your face, you know, and you cannot move um, for like 10 minutes. That happened numerous times, and I'm telling you, it was absolutely um, just brutal. Or even today, you know, some people today are really, really into garlic, and I have to like watch when I say this type of thing because inevitably this always happens you were looking at me okay I'm not looking at anybody when I say this all right okay I'm just gonna look at the clock when I say this but but you know some people are like really really into garlic they like to eat it they take pills garlic pills and they're do it for health reasons and and it like comes to the point where it's like just it's it's on their breath it's seeping out of their pores and 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 they go to like give you a hug or you know before COVID and uh and it's like just like oh my my, you know. Now I like garlic on my food, <laughs> but man, it can be, you know, a challenge. Um, but, you know, the opposite is true. You ladies know this. You ladies much more than the guys. You're huggers, and, and you know what it's like when you you know hug some sister again before COVID, and you know you give them a, a hug, and, and they have on a sweet perfume, and it's like oh man, you smell so nice, or you know they you smell their body wash, or you know something, or when my my little grandson, you know, right after he's taken a bath and he comes and gets in my arms, he just has that fresh baby smell, and it's just it's just smells so good. Well, you know what. I think the same thing can be true of the church of Jesus Christ. Sometimes the church gives off this sweet fragrance of Jesus. Where you're just around the body, and it's like, wow, man, that just, that was sweet. And there's just a sense of God's presence and God's heart, and it's wonderful and it's inviting, and you just wanna lean into it. But at other times, the body of Christ, it can reek of a horrible stench of human flesh. And I'm not talking about human B.O., but I'm talking about just that fleshly B.O. of, you know, the world and the fleshly nature. Well, that's the case here in Corinth. This was a church that, on one hand, kind of reeked. And the Corinthians, you see, have been behaving like their worldly counterparts. And they, by by comparing and choosing teachers— we talked about this a couple of weeks ago when we began to tackle this first subject of division. And Paul wrote there in chapter 1, he said, this is the problem. There's division amongst you. And you're saying, I'm of Paul. No, I'm of Apollos. I'm of Peter. And then there was the group that was like, we're the Jesus-only people, you know. And, and that was what was happening there. But the thing was is that that's exactly what the world around them was doing. The world around them was divided by their various philosophers and philosophies that were so uh, prominent and important in those Grecian cultures, and so they were just following the mindset of the world around them, and the result of that was division. Paul uses the word, that word division means schemata, and it means to tear or to rend the body of Christ. It's to tear the body of Christ apart or to tear the bride of Christ apart. And so Paul writes to correct this mindset and this error, and I want you to catch this because oftentimes people miss this. He spends the first four chapters dealing with this first problem. And the reason why we know that is he keeps bringing up Paul and Apollos and Peter all the way through all four of these chapters. He's taking a long time to answer this one issue because it's a serious issue. In fact, we mentioned this the last time that we were together that in Proverbs chapter 6, the Lord says this, that there are Six things that the Lord hates. And you can search the Bible on your own. There are not many things that God says he hates. He says there's six things that he hates, seven that are an abomination to him. And on that list of those seven things is this thing. He says one who sows discord amongst the brethren. It grieves his heart. So Paul is dealing with this subject of division, and he begins his instruction there in chapter 1, verse 13, by asking the question, is Christ divided? And it's really a rhetorical question. The answer is no. And so this is what Paul is going to do. He's going to explain in the following chapters that, hey, this is what you need to understand, church, we're all working together. All these guys that you're divided over, we're all working together. We all have the same goal. We're all serving the same purpose. We're all aiming at the the same thing. We're all serving the same Lord. We might have different functions and even different methods, but we're all aiming at the same target. Now, I see the same thing happening in the church today. We become divided, and I want you to hear me on this. Listen closely. We can become divided, and I say the church, I'm not the church, you know, it can be this church or it can be the church as a whole, but we become divided because we don't have the wisdom or we don't exercise the wisdom to distinguish between different and wrong, okay? We don't know how to distinguish between different and wrong. Let me give you an example. You know, we see a different take on an issue or a different approach to ministry. And instead of thinking, oh, that's different, we have the tendency to think that's wrong. They think differently than I do on that, and they are wrong. Or my take is better, or my way is better, my method is better, and what they're doing is wrong. And to be honest, I've seen that same mentality in Calvary Chapel, because in Calvary Chapel, you know, we have grown up with this great tradition um, that we love of what we're doing tonight, expositional teaching through the word of God. But I've seen some Calvary Chapel pastors who would look at another pastor who in their church teach topically and instead of just going, oh, that's different, he, what they're doing is different, they're wrong. <laughs> they're doing it wrong. And that's really a pride thing on our part. So this is what Paul is wanting these Corinthian believers and us to see, is the foolishness of this thinking. And he wants to correct this thinking by giving them the following insights. These are the four main things that he aims at in chapters one through four. We see, first of all, number one, he wants them to understand that the power is in the message of the gospel and not the messenger. That's chapter one, verse 18 through chapter two, verse five. That's what we covered the last time we were together. The second thing that he wants them to understand is that we need the mindset of Christ and not the mindset of the world. That's what he's going to cover chapter 2, verse 6, through chapter 3, verse 4. We're going to look at that tonight. And then number 3, he wants them to understand that, hey, we're all working together. We're all on the same team, and we all have the same goals. And again, he covers that in the rest of chapter 3, which Hopefully, we'll get through tonight. And then the fourth thing is he wants them to understand is that we are all to be faithful stewards and servants of what God has entrusted to us. And that is the focus of chapter 4, which we'll get into probably next week. Now, again, we looked at the first one last time. Number one, that the power is in the message of the gospel and not the messenger. Look at verse 18 of chapter 1 again. He says, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. There is power in the message of the gospel. I remember reading a story of Dr. Harry Ironside, a preacher of old who was preaching over in England, in London, and um, he was preaching at an outdoor meeting. And afterwards, a very well dressed and very distinguished looking man came up to him and handed um, Pastor Ironside his business card. And Ironside looked at his business card and he looked at the name on it and he immediately recognized it that this was a man who was a well-known agnostic who traveled around England and primarily there in London speaking to large crowds about agnosticism and he would ridicule the Bible. Well, he challenged Professor or Pastor Ironside to a debate and he said, That, you know, I want you to come and I challenge you to debate me on, you know, the Bible and, and, you know, belief in God versus agnosticism. And Ironside went back up to the podium and the crowd of people that were still gathered and kind of watching this all unfold. And he said, this man has challenged me. And he says, I will accept his challenge on two conditions. Number one, that he can bring To this debate that he can produce one man whose life has been just ruined by alcoholism and addiction. Who after hearing one of his lectures on agnosticism, his life was changed and transformed. If he can produce such a man I'll meet with him. And he says, and number two, that he could bring a woman whose life has been ruined by prostitution and sexual immorality and, and who, after going to one of his lectures, her, her life has been changed and transformed. If he can produce such a woman, I will meet with him to debate with him. And then he said, and I will bring a hundred men whose lives have been transformed by the gospel, who were in addiction to alcoholism, whose lives had been you know, just wrecked, who are now, you know, just changed and they're they're living a great life and they're contributing to society. And I will bring a hundred women whose lives have been ruined by prostitution and sexual immorality, who now have seen their lives transformed by the message and the power of the gospel. Well when the man heard that, he turned around and walked away because he knew he could not produce one man. Or one woman. You see, the philosophies of this world cannot transform a person's heart. They can't do that work of changing somebody on the inside that then affects their life on the outside. And so the first thing Paul wants the Corinthians to see is that there is power in the message of the gospel, but the power is in the message and not the messenger. That was the focus of verse. 18 of chapter 1 all the way through chapter 2, verse 5. It's why Paul would say in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. And we saw last time that in chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, Paul used himself as an example. He said, remember when I came to you, I did not come with persuasive speech. In other words, I wasn't coming trying to be this persuasive and powerful orator. He says, no, the power you see is in the message. So notice chapter two, verse two, he says, for when I, I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And then skip down to verse five. This is the reason that your face should be in the, not in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. That was Paul's first argument, his first insight to this problem of division. That they needed to remember the power was in the message and not the messenger. Now in chapter 2, verse 6, we see his second argument. And the second argument, as I mentioned, is this, that we need the mindset of Christ and not the mindset of the world. Follow along as I read, beginning in verse 6. He says, however, we speak wisdom among those who are mature, yet not the wisdom of this age. The wisdom of that, that, that age was the philosophies that were floating around, nor of the rulers of this age. The word rulers there is the leaders, and it's speaking there of the leading philosophers and those who were the thinkers and the, the prognosticators of that day. He says, so, so we don't speak the wisdom, nor the wisdom of the rulers of this age, he says, who are coming to nothing. He says, you know, leaders, the, these philosophers, they come and go. That's what we see, leaders come and go, politicians come and go. But we, verse 7, speak the wisdom of God in a mystery the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages for our glory. Now pause there for a moment and and, and understand this. You might circle that word mystery, and in the Greek it's the word mysterion. And it's, it's not mystery in the way that we think of it. We, we think of, you know, mystery and we think of, you know, Nancy Drew or, or uh, for those who are older. Or we think of, uh, you know, some thriller or who, you know, who done it type of thing. That's not what this word is speaking of. The word mysterion is a word that means something that which was once hidden but has now been revealed. So here's the question. What was the mystery that was hidden? hidden and now has been revealed this is the mystery that was once hidden that the people didn't get they didn't understand that that even after jesus came they were still struggling with it this was the mystery that god would send his son from heaven born of a virgin He would become a man so that he could go to a cross so that he could redeem mankind from their sin. And he came to unite both Jews and Gentiles together in one body. Brought together to become the family of God. This is what Paul writes about in Colossians. He writes out the same mystery when he talks about that the wall of division between the Jew and the Gentile has now been broken down. And I want you to think about this. I mean, we're talking about you know a hostility that existed between these two people groups for thousands of years. That suddenly all of a sudden was broken down and the two are brought together in one in Christ. And friends, this is the answer to, you know, our race issues today is that we all come together no matter our, our color, our race, our background. We come together in Christ and we are one in Christ and we realize in Christ that we've all been made, you know, uniquely by God in his image to be light bearers of Who he is. So Paul continues. He's speaking about this wisdom in verse 7. He says, But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery. The hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages for our glory, which none of the rulers of this age knew, for had they known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. If they understood why Jesus was here and what was going they wouldn't have crucified him, is what Paul's saying. But as it is written, Eye has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. Now, pause there and give me your attention. Verse 9 often gets quoted by pastors like myself as a reference to heaven. They're talking about heaven, and they'll quote this verse. I've done it before myself. But you know, it's interesting, although what Paul is saying here in verse 9 is true about heaven... In fact, when we, when we get into 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9, we'll see that Paul had a vision where he was taken up into the third heaven. And he says, human words cannot describe what I saw. It was like so amazing. There's not even a word in our vocabulary that, that can describe it. So what Paul is saying here in verse 9 is true about heaven. But I want you to catch this. The context of what he is saying is not talking about heaven. It's talking about the glory of the gospel. It's talking about the beautiful mystery of the gospel, of what Jesus came to accomplish. That that what he's saying is that, hey, we're never ever going to fully be able to comprehend the full magnitude of the gospel and and what it means for us, what it entails for us, what it means that, that our past Sin and the penalty of our sin has been paid for by Jesus Christ. Do you realize that your past has been Cleared, it's been forgiven and it's been forgotten. It's been taken care of by Jesus on the cross. Our past is taken care. of. But the gospel also speaks of this hope. It, it ensures us of our future destiny. That we know that to be absent from this body is to be present with the Lord. We know that when we're going, to, we're going to go to heaven when we die or when the rapture takes place. But after the rapture happens, seven years later, Jesus is going to come back, and we're going to come back with. With him And the Bible says that we're going to rule and reign with him. And he's going to set up a kingdom here on this earth for a thousand years. And we get to be a part of that. And all of that is a part of our, our destiny. All of that is a part of the gospel message. What God has prepared for us that we can't even fully imagine. Like, okay, what is heaven going to be like? And what is that? What does he have for us? But, but it's not just our past and our future, but the gospel also teaches us that Jesus 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 is sufficient for everything in between those two things in our lives. That his grace is sufficient. That he is with us, that he is doing that work in our lives, that the work he has begun, he's going to be faithful to complete it. And this is the power of the gospel that Paul is saying. That's what he's referring to when he says, Hey, I has not seen nor ear heard nor has entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for him. And that should encourage all of us here to be students of the gospel. That should encourage all of us to be those who want to dig into and really mine out the truths of what the gospel means for us. And what it means for us to be in Christ. On verse 10, he says this, but God has revealed them to us. Now, Paul there is speaking about when he says to us, the apostles who wrote the inspired scripture. But it's also been revealed to us because the inspired scriptures that they wrote, the New Testament that we hold in our hands and dear to our heart, has been passed on to us. So God has revealed them to us through his spirit for the spirit searches all things. Yes, the deep things of God for what man knows the things of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him. What Paul is saying there is only, you know, what's really, really in your heart. Only, you know, your motives only you know what's really going on inside of you. You and God, I, I can guess, I can sit there and theorize, I can, you know, I can make a, a judgment, but I really, really, oh, you're the only one that really knows what's going on in, in your heart. And so Paul says this, even so, no one knows the things of God except the Spirit of God. Okay, now that can be a little bit discouraging. Like, oh, wait a minute. He's saying there's these great things, but we can't know them? Well, he's not done. Notice verse 12. Now, we have not received the spirit of the world, but but the spirit who is from God, that we might know. Everybody say no. That we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. These things we also speak, not in words which wisdom teaches, but, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual things. This is what Paul is saying. No one knows the spirit of a man. What's going on inside of him, unless he reveals it, unless he opens up and shares, hey, this is what's going on. And he's only we're only going to know to the degree that he shares with us. Well, Paul says, no one knows the things of God except the Spirit of God. But this is the good news. The Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit has been given to you and me. God has placed the minute that you put your faith in Jesus Christ there are two wonderful things that happen you get placed into Christ so that when God looks at you he now sees you in the righteousness of his son but not only that not only do you get placed in Christ but Jesus comes to live inside of you your heart by his spirit and Paul says that we received a new spirit the Holy Spirit inside of our hearts and this is what he does he teaches us. He leads us in spiritual matters. But this also causes a problem. Look at verse 14. He says, but the natural man, the natural man is the unregenerate man. That's the man, that's the woman who has not been born again, who hasn't put their faith in Jesus Christ. But the natural man does not receive the things of the spirit of God for they are foolishness to them nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. But he who is spiritual judges all things, yet he himself is rightly judged by no one. Let me ask you this question. Have you ever talked to an unbeliever about the things of the Lord and had them just look at you with this blank stare? How many of you experienced that before? Okay, probably all of us trying to talk something they're just like looking at you like you're speaking you know another language they're not getting it why well paul tells us the things of the spirit are spiritually discerned in other words you have to be spiritually alive in order to discern them okay the lord has to be doing something in your heart think about something back before you were saved some of you tried to read the bible you thought you know what i'm gonna try i'm gonna read the bible you started in Genesis and you got to Exodus and, you know, some cool stories there. And then you hit Leviticus and all these sacrifices and festivals. And you're like, okay, I'm done with this. Some of you, though, persevered and you made it all the way through. I've, had people, I've read the whole Bible. Really? Yeah, I read the whole Bible. I know some Christians that haven't read the whole Bible. You know, like, I read the whole Bible and I didn't get anything out of it. People have said that. Some of you maybe experienced that. Well, here's the reason why. The Bible is a spiritual book. And you have to be spiritually alive to understand. Now, Paul adds this insight in 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. It'll be on the screen. He says, but even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, and here's the key phrase, whose mind the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe. They've had their minds blinded, And that's why we need to pray. People that you know that just don't seem like they seem hard or they look at you with that blank stare, start praying for them that God would lift the blinders from their eyes because that's the problem. Their eyes have been blinded, and it's amazing when you see God lift the blinders. You know, back when I was a youth pastor, I remember there was this one girl in our youth group. She was 15, I think she was a sophomore. And she had got into some trouble, like it was shoplifting or something like that. And so her parents made her come talk to me, the youth pastor. They wanted me to meet with her. Now this is a girl I want to catch this. This is a girl from a Christian home. This is a girl who was in Sunday school. You know she was in youth group almost every Sunday. This is a girl who had went to camps with us, but she was not yet born again. And the reason was, is her eyes, her mind was blinded. Now I met with her several times, okay? And I'm talking with her about some of the most basic things of the faith and all I'm getting is this blank stare. But it wasn't a rebellious stare. Kind of thing. Okay, I did youth ministry for 10 years. I'm well acquainted with that rebellious teenage heart. That's like I'm not listening to you. It wasn't that thing. That's not what she was doing. She was listening intently. But she wasn't comprehending things that I've seen 10 year olds grasp. But then it happened. The fourth time that we met. All of a sudden I'm talking to her. And I, I, I mean, I can only describe it as like the light came on, like it just like boom! All of a sudden, it clicked, and she got it. And she started to cry. And she genuinely gave her life to Jesus in that moment. She gave her heart to Jesus and everything changed. Her whole demeanor changed. She was transformed. You you could see it in her countenance, the way that she just, you know, moved around. It was just brighter. She was suddenly into Bible study. She's taking notes and, and she's impacting her friends. And it was a radical Transformation. And it happened when the blinders all of a sudden were lifted, and the light came on. And I have seen that happen hundreds of times to various people. But I gotta say, she was the most demonstrative. I mean, it was the most demonstrative. Like, like, I mean, early on, I hate to admit this, but I mean, early on when I'm trying to talk to her, I'm thinking like, is she like dumb? You know. <laughs> Is she have a learning disability? I mean, I was literally thinking that because I'm thinking like, man, I've seen 10-year-olds in Sunday school get this. And she just wasn't grasping. But all of a sudden, the light came on. And man, everything changed. And she went on to just have a very vibrant walk with Jesus. Well, Paul says... Verse 16, for who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him, but we have the mind of Christ. And this is the key that he's trying to get them to see of why there should not be division amongst them is because, hey, in Christ, we've been given a whole new mindset, We have the mind of Christ. And the problem in Corinth is that they had reverted back to their old worldly mindset when they began to look at life through the lens of the world. And when that happened, disaster, when when that takes place, disaster happens. Division happens. So Paul continues here in chapter 3. Notice verse 1. And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual people, but as to carnal. Circle that word carnal, and you can write next to it fleshly or worldly. So he says, I couldn't speak to you as spiritual people, but as to carnal, as to babes in Christ. Now, Paul was with them for 18 months, but he's saying, you you guys just, you were like babies, He says, he continues, I fed you milk and not with solid food. Now, the writer of Hebrews says in his epistle, he says that by now you should be eating solid food. If you were really mature, but the problem is I still have to give you the milk, the elementary things, he says, but he gives us insight. He says, because the solid food is for those who by reason of use They exercise what they're being taught. And you see, that's the problem that was happening in Corinth. And I pray that this would not be the problem in your heart or your life, that you wouldn't just be one that hears God's word, but that you would be one that applies God's word. And so Paul says to them, I fed you with milk and not solid food, for until now you were not even able to receive it, and even now you are still not able because you are still Carnal. Now, this is interesting to me. Pause there and give me your attention. There's a very popular Bible teacher who says that there is no such thing as a carnal Christian. What I find interesting about that is Paul tells the church in Corinth, we read it right here, that they're carnal, that they're fleshly minded. So is he saying that they're not Christians? Well, I want you to keep your place here. Turn back to chapter 1. Okay, just for a moment, just a page there, and look at verse 4. Look at how, how, what Paul said as he began this letter, how he spoke about this church. Verse 4, he says, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God, which was given to you by Christ Jesus, that you were enriched in everything by him, in all utterance and all knowledge, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you so that you came short in no gift, eagerly waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. I don't think you can get any more saved than that description. I mean, in verse 9, he says they were called into fellowship with Jesus. In verse 4, he says they were recipients of grace. In verse 5, he says they were enriched in everything, in all utterance and knowledge. In verse 6, he says that they had a testimony that had been confirmed in their lives. And then in verse 7, he says that they weren't lacking in any of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. I mean, this was a group of people that were definitely saved. Their lives had been impacted by the message of the gospel. They had given their hearts to Jesus. They were radically saved. And yet Paul says in their keyword here, catch this, in their behavior. In their behavior, they were carnal. They were of the flesh. They were worldly. They were acting like natural men and women around them who did not know Jesus. And this was the evidence of it. Look at the end of verse 3. He says, For where there are envy and strife and divisions among you, are you not carnal, behaving like mere men? When there's divisions and strife and envy, you're just acting like an unregenerate Person. For one says, I'm of Paul, and another, I'm of Apollos. Are you not carnal? So here's what Paul's telling us Carnality expresses itself in envy and strife and divisions. But oftentimes, church, it it expresses itself in those things, but it's masquerading as being spiritual. Here's how it happens. Somebody says, comes to somebody else in the body, hey, we really need to pray for so-and-so. Yeah, you should have heard what I heard. Or you should, you, know, you should have saw what I saw. Or you should hear what, you know, what, what is going on. Or someone might say, you know, I, have a, I, have, I have a concern about that leader. I got a concern about Pastor Rob, you know. And instead of talking with the leader, they talk to someone else. And here's what happens. And then it begins to spread. You ever play that game, Secret. How many? Of you, how many of you have ever? How many of you have ever, you know, shared something with somebody else in confidence, and then had them share that with somebody else? How many of you have experienced that? Okay. most of us in the room, right? It's like, okay, you can't tell anybody, okay. And how did that make you feel, right? Like betrayed when that takes place. But oftentimes, this happens. It spreads and it builds momentum. And if enough of us begin to feel a certain way about something or about someone, then it's got to be right, right? So, so like, protest. You know, it's got to be right. You know, we all feel this way. We're all marching together. we got to be thinking the right thing about all of this. Well, what would have happened if they would have went to Apollos and said, you know, hey, we have this concern about Paul. Well, I'm guessing Apollos would have put them in their place. I mean, at least I hope so. That's what Paul's doing here. He's putting them in their place. You see, Paul understood something about carnality that he shared in Romans chapter eight, verse six. He says, for to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. When we're carnally minded, when we're all wrapped up in just our fleshly thinking and our emotions and our attitudes of the flesh about everything, it just brings death and it brings destruction. It tears things up. It wrecks lives and it wrecks churches. So carnality expresses itself in envy, strife, and divisions. And to be honest, this has been my single Greatest struggle as a pastor. Here's what I mean. My single greatest struggle as a pastor is watching people that I know and have known for years who know Jesus. I know they know Jesus. I know that they're followers of Jesus. My greatest struggle has been watching people I know who know Jesus act like someone who doesn't know Jesus, in that they start gossiping, they're talking about somebody behind their backs, they're holding grudges, they're taking advantage of others, they're forming cliques, they're bad-mouthing other people. All of that is signs of carnality, and you know what it does? It stinks. It's foul. It brings about this very disgusting odor in the body of Christ. That you're like, oh, I can't get too close to that person. I mean, it's like bad garlic. You know, I mean, it just really, really, it's foul. Now, now, here's what's interesting. We have a tendency to think of carnality in this way. We think of things like sexual immorality and drunkenness, and you know, those are the biggies in in our mind. But Paul describes these things as the works of the flesh. Of the carnal man or woman in Galatians chapter 5. I'll read it to you. It'll be on the screen. He says this. Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery. Here's here's what we call the biggies. Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery. But then he mentions hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy. Then he goes back to murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like. Now I I want him to put that. Oops. I want them to put that verse on the, the screen again, and I, I think they highlighted the ones in the middle, did they? Now check that out. Check out the ones there. Hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambition, dissensions, heresy, envy. These are all these things that often we see happening in the body of Christ, and we think, oh, you know, it, that, it's not that bad. Paul says, this is the works of the flesh, This is carnality. This is that carnal mindset. And when Christians get disconnected from Jesus and start looking at things from the perspective of the natural person or the person who doesn't know Jesus, this is what happens. Division takes place. The body of Christ begins to get torn apart. Dissensions, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambition are the result, and that's what was happening in Corinth. And this what's happening in Corinth has been repeated tens of thousands of times uh, in churches all around the world, unfortunately. And so Paul is instructing the Corinthians that, hey, Jesus is not divided, that the power for transformation is in the message, not the messenger, and that they need to get back to having the mindset of Jesus instead of this competitive mindset of the world. He's saying you got to remember whose spirit is in you. Who's trying to do a work of renewal in your heart that changes the way that you think and the way that you see others and that leads us to f- number three that he says and we're going to finish with this one tonight he wants them to understand hey we're all working together we're all part of the same team we're all uh, you know shooting for the same goal look at verse five he says who then is paul and who is Apollos, but ministers through whom you believed as the Lord gave to each one. Verse six, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So then neither he who plants is anything, nor he who waters, but God who gives the increase. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, and each one will receive his own reward according to his own Labor. Now it's interesting, Paul uses some interesting words here to describe himself and Apollos. He uses the word ministers, which is the word servants. And he, so he's using this, low, uh, this, this this term that speaks of a low status. The servants, the, the lowest you know, guys in, in the house. You see, Corinth was an elitist Roman colony that despised manual laborers. They look down upon them. And yet Paul um, describes both himself and Apollos as servants and gardeners, manual laborers, in other words, with different duties. But they were all on the same team, working for the same goal, and the goal was to spread the gospel, to see people get saved, and to grow in Jesus. That was their goal. And Paul says, I planted... I came in. I was the first to share the gospel here. I planted the seed of the gospel. And Apollos, he came along after me and he watered it. But it was God who gave the increase. So verse 7, he says, so then neither he who plants is anything, nor he who waters, but God who gives the increase. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, and each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor. Now there at the end of verse 8, he introduces this thought that he's going to get into more in chapter 4. And it's the idea that he and Apollos were both stewards of what God had given to them just like you are a steward of what God has given to you. And he's going to talk about how we're called to be faithful stewards of what God has given to us. But the emphasis here that he's trying to make is, you know, we're both workers, we're both gardeners, we're both, you know, working in the same field, but we're working together. And, you know, that's really true, or at least should be true of all the churches We're all working together. We're all shooting at the same thing. We're all desiring the same thing to see lives get transformed and our culture and our community get turned upside down by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so when I hear of something great that happens in another church around here, I love to call that pastor or text that pastor and say, hey, praise God. We are rejoicing with you and what God is doing there. That's awesome. It's amazing, praise God. It's like celebrating you know, each other's victories that we're all in this together. And Paul continues on that vein in verse nine. He says, for we are God's fellow workers and you are God's field and you are God's building. According to the grace of God, which was given to me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation and another builds on it. Paul laid the foundation of the gospel. The foundation was the preaching of Jesus Christ and him crucified. Paul said, hey, when I came, I sought to know nothing among you except Jesus and him crucified. Because that's the foundation. That's where everything starts. Apollos and others came and they built upon that foundation. But Jesus is the foundation of our faith. He's the cornerstone. The foundation is knowing who he is, that he, was, that he is God in human flesh, that he was our redeemer. That died on the cross for our sins, that and three days later rose again and beat death and came out of the grave, and that He is the only way to be saved, and that He is the head of the church. All of that is essential doctrine. That's the foundation. That's the cornerstone. I love what my mentor, John Corson, said about this. He said, the true church of Jesus Christ is not built upon let's get together and make something happen politically or let's launch a moral crusade or let's be socially responsible. No, it's based upon Jesus Christ, our hero, our savior, our friend, and our coming king. That's the foundation. But then we're to build upon that foundation How we build, though, is important. Look at the end of verse 10. He says, but let each one take heed to how he builds on it. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on this foundation with gold and silver and precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, each one's work will become clear. For the day will declare it. Because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work, which has been built on, it endures, he will receive a reward. And if anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss. But he himself will be saved yet as so, or yet so as through fire. Now, gold, silver and precious stones are elements that can withstand the fire. There are elements that are refined in the fire, whereas wood, hay, and straw is that which is burned up by the fire. In other words, there's nothing left. Paul is telling us here that there are materials that we can build with that do not withstand the fire. There's materials that aren't going to make it. That when, when, you know, the Bible says that there's a day coming that we're all going to stand before Jesus. Now, we're not going to be judged as for our sin because they've been covered by Christ. But we're going to be judged for how we live for Jesus here. It's going to be part of our reward. And Paul says that that there's going to be some things that when we stand before Jesus and he's looking at us with those eyes that are like a flame of fire, there's some stuff that's going to get burned up. And most commentators believe that Paul is speaking here about our motives. That if our motives are to glorify God and see people grow in God, that those are good materials. That's the gold, silver, and precious stone that will withstand the fire. But if our motives are to bring attention to ourselves, if our motives are to get glory or make a name for ourselves, if our motives are to gain you know, popularity or, or that type of thing, that's wood, hay, and stubble that is going to be burned. Okay? That's why James said in James chapter three, verse one, let not not many of you become teachers because those teachers, those pastors, they, they are going to endure a stricter judgment, okay? Now, I do agree that I believe this can refer to our motives, but I also think it refers to materials because this is kind of the idea that Paul is talking about here. And we're trying to, you know, there's materials that you can build on the foundation with. So the question is, what are we trying to build our ministry with? Is it cool, innovative marketing techniques? Is it things that appeal to people's fleshly tendencies? Like, you know, hey, let's just get them in the door, do whatever it takes, you know, to get them in the door so that we can attract more people. But the thing you've got to realize about that is big always isn't better, okay? Okay. In fact, my heart has always been not so much, hey, let's see how you know, big a church we can make, but let's see how big we can make the people in the church. And I'm not talking about like physically big, I'm talking about spiritually. You know, let's see how, how we can, you know, we're talking about big people, big people in Jesus. And big people affect other people. Like Pastor Chuck used to always say, healthy sheep beget sheep. So the materials that we seek to build with are Bible study, discipleship, building community, helping people identify who they are in Christ, helping people grow in their worship of Jesus and understanding the importance of that we have been made for worship and God desires that we worship him in spirit and in truth. Those are the things that last. Those are the things that build big people. Now, At this point in verse 16, Paul says something really, really strong as he's kind of wrapping up this thought. He says, do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? Now, in chapter 6, he's going to use the same analogy. But he's going to use it in speaking about them as individuals. He'll say it this way. Don't you know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? So you got to be careful what you put into it. you got to be careful what you attach it to. But here, he is not talking about them as individuals, but he's talking about them collectively as the body of Christ. As the building of God. And he's saying, Don't you know that you guys, all of you, you are the temple of God, that he dwells in you? It's all of us together. You are the temple of God. Therefore, verse 17, if anyone defiles, and this word defile is again in the context of causing division. If anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him. What is Paul trying to say? This is serious, guys. This is serious. For the temple of God is holy, which you are. And then he's going to close this whole argument, this this third point, with another exhortation as he ends chapter 3 to avoid worldly wisdom. We'll pick it up in verse 18. He says, let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you seems to be wise in this age, let him become a fool. That he may become wise. In other words, hey, remember this. The way up is down. The way to wisdom is humility. And that's what Paul's trying to say here. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their own craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. Therefore, let no one boast in men for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, that's Peter, or the, the world or life or death or things present or things to come are all yours. And you are Christ and Christ is God's. Here's what Paul's doing. He's telling us something about carnality here that I think we need to hear. Now, he's already told us that carnality expresses itself through envy, strife, and division. It's about arguing and becoming enraged toward people over things that do not have any eternal value. But here he tells us something else about carnality, that that wisdom of the world. And this, is, and this is what he's wanting us to understand. Carnality is a gross limitation to what is yours in Christ. You see, whenever we take and in, in, in cease to have the mind of Christ and we start having the mind of the world, we start walking in that carnality mindset, we're missing out on what God has for us. Notice twice, says, twice Paul says here, all things are yours. Paul, Apollos, Cephas, the world, life, death, things present, things gone it's all yours. Do you catch that? He's saying, hey, guys, you're rich. You're rich, you're blessed, you have it all. You are in Christ, and Christ is God. And Ephesians, Paul says, we are co-heirs with Jesus Christ. Are you kidding me? I mean, this is like too much to handle. That's what he's talking about here. But you see, that's what grace really looks like. Listen close as I wrap this up. This is what grace teaches us, that in Christ, you get it all. Everything that you think that you missed out on, you get in Jesus. I mean, everything that is of the Lord. Everything that you think that would have added value to your life, but didn't happen, you're going to get, you're going to experience that in the Lord and more. Maybe you feel disappointed with this life. Listen, you get life in the end. Jesus says, I've come you might have life, and that more abundantly. And he's, talk, he's talking about a, an abundant life, a quality of life that begins now, but that we get the culmination of it on the other side. Maybe you feel like death has robbed you of people. Well, hey, you get that too. Death will be swallowed up. Are you missing out on the present? Hey, you get that. Are you afraid of your future? Don't be. Your future is awesome. It's great. That's why Paul said in Colossians 3:1, set your mind on the things above where Christ is seated, not on the things of this earth. In other words, be heavenly minded, not earthly minded. Carnality is earthly. Carnality is a gross limitation to what is yours in Christ. Carnality is the ultimate expression of settling for less than God's best in your life. It's sort of like being more interested in the manure than the horse. That's what happens to little kids sometimes. You know, it's like big horse. Oh, look at the horsey, and they, they want to go put their hands in the manure. You know. Why? Because they're little kids, and they don't know better. But you know better. You're not babes. Don't don't be like the, the carnally-minded person. Set your mind on the things above. Paul wants us to understand that the whole Bible is shouting to us, there is more, so don't settle. There's more. That's why Paul said in Philippians chapter 3 of himself, I love this testimony, he says, hey, Man, I am forgetting what lies behind and I am pressing on. I'm looking ahead. I'm pressing on. I'm reaching forward. I'm looking for more to discover who I am in Christ and why he's apprehended me. That was his mindset. What he's saying is, hey, this is all about discovery. And we can spend the rest of our lives joyfully coming to understand who we are in Jesus. So let's have that heart. And you know, the result of that will be the sweet fragrance of Jesus coming out of us and not the ugly, gross stench of the flesh, the world of that carnal, natural man that does not know God. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you, God, for this beautiful and wonderful instruction from our brother Paul. We thank you, God, for just his heart to not want to bash us, but to instruct us so that we wouldn't be settling and we wouldn't miss out and we wouldn't walk in carnality and that mindset of the world around us that leads to things like envy and strife and division. So Lord, I pray that you would help us to keep the main thing, the main thing, that you would help us, Lord, to Remember that the message, the power is in the message and not the messenger. We can appreciate the messengers, but it's you, you're doing the work. And help us, Lord, to realize that each and every one of us, we're on the same team. So may we, Lord, be running in the same direction. And we would be of the same mind and the same heart. That you would help us, God, in the midst of this chaotic world that we're living in, that we would be beacons of light, that they would see something different in us, that our lives would truly give off the fragrance of Jesus in such a way that it would just draw people in. In Jesus' name, amen.